our God. Sing me how great is our God. And all will see how great 
at his voice it trembles at his voice sing how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great oh how great is our God How great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. Oh, God. 
Welcome to 2012. As we come, we come focused in this moment on communion. And the reason we do this is many of us that were brought up in evangelical, charismatic circles, communion was um, a little bit pale to us. But historically, the church always focused on this moment. It was kind of the high watermark of their gathering was the Eucharist, the celebrating the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And the reason they did that was because they wanted to remember that this is most about Jesus and not so much about what our performance is about. And as we come, I wanted to read a little prayer to you from Wesley, John Wesley. But before I do that, let me say that just this last week or so, I had a couple of people that talked to me that are just in some of the most wonderful places they could have ever imagined in their lives. They are, have opened doors that they're going to be realizing their dreams, and they're so excited and so hopeful for 2012. And at the same time, I had, have had a couple of people that have called me that their lives are literally falling apart. And uh, one of the guys, you know, just doesn't know what to do, just doesn't know what the next right step is. And my encouragement to him is there is one and that every right step opens up the possibility for a next right step which the kingdom is released from. Another gentleman called me just, just yesterday and said that they had found this cancer in his head and they told him that he'd probably lose his eyesight. Wonderful man, one of our community. And I thought about that text that you rejoice with those that rejoice and you weep with those that weep and it again underscored the fact that we're in a world that's fallen. I used to think that the people that always won were the people that had great faith. But after doing this for a while, being in the trenches with people, pastoring, loving them, being side by side with them, you come to realize that sometimes the people that seem to deserve it the least often get blessed. And sometimes the people that deserve it the least end up with pain, tragedy. And so what you come to realize is that faith doesn't control the world. It simply presents our life to God in the midst of a fallen world. And no matter what you're going through, whether 2012 has heartache or whether 2012 has nothing but victory, in this house, we will rejoice with you and we will weep with you. But here's what we won't do. Judge you. We're in this together. We link arms together, and if we have hardship, we just say, God, you're bigger. And if we have victory, we say, God, you're praised, and we thank you. 
And uh, that's why I love this prayer by Wesley. For the beginning of the year, what a beautiful prayer. He says, Lord, make me what you will. I put myself fully into your hands. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you. Let me be fully or let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. What's he saying? I'm just yours. And as we pray the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray this morning, let us declare, Lord, I am yours. And as we come to the table and we participate, let's remember that we're participating in this one body, that our very lives are connected not only to him, but to one another. Even the crazies in our midst, we're connected to. And we belong to him, and we belong to each other. We're in this 2012 together. Let's pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, notice it's what? Our Father, not my Father, but I say it again, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, This is my body. Let these elements become for us your body, Jesus. And the same night he said, This is the cup of the New Testament of my blood. Let this cup become for us the blood of Christ so that we can partake this morning in the body and the blood of Christ. Let us protect this morning of eternal life in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Come and receive eternal life.
morning Lord with thanksgiving in our hearts and we thank you that you are such a good God that you always are there for us that you never leave us or forsake us God for those of us who find ourselves in desperate places we ask that you would rescue us redeem us make us whole for those who are filled with sickness we pray for healing we thank you that you make us whole. For those who are brokenhearted, we ask that you would mend our hearts. Help us forgive. Help us open up and love one another. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, would you do this? Would you stand up and turn to someone around you and say, Happy New Year and grace and peace to you. Did you not enjoy that worship this morning? We have our guest, uh, this is Dave Campbell, who was on the um, cellos. Thank you, David. Great job. 
How many enjoyed that uh, Christmas Eve series of services? Wasn't that wonderful? Thank you, David, and all the stuff you put together. Uh, this is a very critical uh, piece of information that you get each week. It's called the Bulletin, and it has all kinds of information that you'll want to be watching as we go into 2012. We're trying to limit our announcements in the actual services just because we respect your time, and but we encourage you to pay attention to that. If you notice on the bulletin, one of the pieces pulls off, one of the panels pulls off, and if you're a guest with us, we'd love to get your information, be able to send you a text on what's happening each Sunday if you'd like to do that or find out more about this community. On the flip side, there's a connections card for opportunities to connect with us here in Sanctuary. 2012, we're anticipating to as these two communities have come together to have great history together, have some wonderful times together, and build a little bit of a legend of what God does in our context. I want to encourage you. If you're preparing your gifts this morning, please do so. In just a moment, the uh, ushers are going to be coming and receiving our tithes and offerings. This is a pretty low uh, services for this weekend, so we're, we're calling this Double Tithe Sunday. <laughs> yeah, right. But we are just delighted that you're here. Happy New Year to you. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness in our lives and your faithfulness. And God, I pray that in 2012, we as a people will center in and be satisfied in the fact that you really are our provider. That just as you take care of creation and you clothe and you feed the birds and the flowers and, and all that we see, that we will trust, that we will be people of big faith, not little faith, who believe that you really will take care of us. And we trust you to that end. Help us to not be moved or directed or controlled by money or what you, Jesus, called mammon, the spirit behind it. But help us be expectant of your kingdom. And every time we give in these moments, we pray that it will be a declaration of our trust, that you are our source. You are as that Word says, Jireh, the provider of our lives. Help us to trust you. Help us to rely upon you. Help us to cling to you. In 2012, we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody said, amen. amen. Go ahead and pass those baskets. I'm going to do something a little awkward. Let me have you stand while the baskets are being presented. Um, this morning, we have our own uh, Pastor Preston, who's going to be sharing with us a message for the new year and a message Christmas and a message for us. Um, let me say this to you because I love this. You know, we're a community that has multiple voices. We do that intentionally. You know, some of you really love uh, Pastor Brent because he's a man that cares. Some of you love Janice because she cares and she's a woman's voice. It's wonderful. Aren't you glad we have a woman's voice in this community? It's wonderful. Some of you might like me because I'm uh, the class clown. Um, some of you, just you're going to like different people. But here's the bottom line. Whoever stands in this pulpit, bottom line, is we listen for the voice beyond the voice. Because the true shepherd is Jesus. And every time we share his word and every time we share a thought that is pregnant with God's presence, then that's what we're after. And we say, Lord, speak to us as a community. Let us hear your voice. And we realize the voice of the shepherd comes through many different people. And so we welcome that and we open our heart. Jesus said, take heed how you hear. In other words, make sure you learn how to listen 
What he's talking about is listening beyond just the externals, but listen from the heart. So let's declare, as we prepare our hearts this morning, let's declare our faith, this ancient creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. How many are looking forward to the resurrection of the body? It's going to be a little younger body for some of us. Praise the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Let's welcome Preston. There we go. Turn to the book of Exodus chapter 19, if you would. I'm going to start in the book of Exodus. We're actually in a really interesting season in the church calendar right now. It is the season of Christmas. Sometimes we don't think in terms of Christmas as a season. We think of it as a day, but we're in the season of Christmas. Uh, the Christmas season begins on Christmas Day and goes for 12 days and ends with Epiphany. Um, epiphany is just a fun word to say, isn't it? Epiphany. Uh, but Epiphany is this really beautiful time. It's actually on Friday this year, this coming Friday, and it's kind of the now what of Christmas. So Christ has come into our world, and now what? What happens next? So we recognize at Epiphany that this new life that's been brought about in Jesus was not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for insiders, but it is the light of the whole world. Um, and in many churches, we see Epiphany as the celebration of Jesus' appearing to the Magi. The Magi were the first Gentiles to be able to experience Jesus. I recently heard of a really cool tradition. Some of you may participate in this, where um, a family will set up their nativity scene uh, well before Christmas, obviously, and then as Christmas approaches and then as Epiphany approaches, they move the Magi one step closer every day until they finally arrive at Epiphany. And I really love that tradition and the anticipation that it creates. Um, so we're going to focus today on Matthew chapter 2, the Magi's visit, but I want to start our journey in Exodus chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you were to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So we see here in the midst of a world of chaos and confusion and pain because of human rebellion, God calls a people. God chooses a people. Now we see in Genesis that um, he's already called this group of people with the call of Abraham. And Abraham is told that he will be blessed so that he can be a blessing to the world. He and his family can be a blessing to all people. And here in Exodus 19, the language that's used is actually Hebrew wedding language. You will be my treasured possession was part of the Hebrew wedding liturgy. Um, Yahweh is saying to his people that he wants to draw close to them. That he's seen all the nations of the world and he chooses them. He reminds them of where they've come from. That they've been delivered from slavery. They were in slavery in Egypt and he brought them out. He also reminds them of who he is as God. He is faithful. He loves them. He is, he is there for them. But there's also another turn that this call takes. It's not just about the past, and it's not just about the present, but he has called them to be something or be someone in the world. He's called them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, a priest in the ancient Near East culture was kind of interesting. Um, there would be a lot of tribal deities in this pagan culture. And if you wanted to know about that particular tribal deity, you would go and find their priest. And the priest's responsibility was to put that God on display or be able to tell you about that particular God. Yahweh does something fascinating here. Rather than calling one person as a priest or, or just, a, just a, a selection of people, he calls a whole nation, a whole kingdom of priests. This is a nation of people who are called to put God on display, to reflect God to the world. But one of the phrases that is used here is really interesting. It's, although the whole earth is mine, Yahweh reminds them the whole earth is his in the first place. That he's not one God among many, as was common in surrounding cultures. But this also points us to the fact that God's desire from the beginning has been to dwell throughout the whole world. Not just in one particular place, but in the whole earth. And one of the patterns that we see throughout scripture is God choosing one person or choosing a few people or calling a nation of people to bless the world. So they're chosen. It's, we could kind of say that the particular is chosen for everybody. There's a particularity there for all. Um, but they're chosen not so that they can hoard the blessing so that they can kind of keep the blessing to themselves, or that they can feel some sort of sense of superiority above, we're the blessed people. Or that they can build barricades around the blessing and create labels for insiders and for outsiders, but so that they might participate in God's desire to heal the whole world. And even though they're unfaithful, and we see, and we as a people, are unfaithful over and over again. One of the things that we see present, and we've seen throughout the Advent and Christmas story, is God does not give up on his desire to use people as carriers of redemption. Beautiful thing. We see time and time again in the scriptural story, what happens is the people forget where they were brought from. They also forget who God is, and they forget who they are called Genesis 25, 21, there's a great story. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other with, within her and said, why is, she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, 
and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out, was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. <laughs> At, yeah. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named jo Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So we see here, even from the womb, there's two nations in conflict here. And this is all throughout the scriptural story. Esau would go on to found the nation of Edom, Jacob, the nation of Israel. And these two nations would be in conflict, and this conflict would prove to be incredibly significant all throughout the scriptural story in the Jewish mind. These two nations are always battling each other and always in tension. The Edomites in the Jewish mind then are always seen as the bad guys. So anytime you see Edomites, it's bad guys throughout the Bible would be the thought. In these days leading up to the birth of Jesus, um, one of the reasons why people would have such a difficult time embracing Jesus as the Messiah is because they were in a really difficult political situation. And one of the reasons why they were in a difficult political situation is they, they were ruled by an Edomite, right? So in their minds, there's already this oppression that's happening. Matthew chapter 2, if we read our story, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, who's this guy, Herod? Herod was the ruler of Judea. Herod was the king under the jurisdiction of the great Caesar. And Caesar had done something really spectacular at this time in the world. He had united the entire Roman Empire. But he ruled the world in a really interesting way. He had a, a pretty amazing system. If it wasn't for the violence involved in it, we'd say it's a it's pretty, pretty good system. <laughs> but he, uh, he, he had this system where he would conquer a land, and then he'd find a ruler in that land to rule on his behalf. Usually it was a warrior who had proved himself to be a great warrior and had done great feats, and a lot of people respected him. So he would choose that person to rule on his behalf. So in the land of Israel, he found a young warrior who was half Jewish and half Edomite named Herod. And people would call this guy the king of the Jews. That was his nickname. King Herod was kind of like a puppet king for the Caesars. He wants to keep Caesar happy, so what we see Herod doing is he's always building monuments and palaces and fortresses for Caesar, and Caesar's just giving him more land as he does that. Also, Herod was known because he had an ability to suppress riots, and so uh, Caesar wasn't really bothered with too much from this land. But Herod was not a peaceful guy. He actually destroyed anybody who stood in his way. He lived a life of luxury, so much so that pe many people believe that Herod was the richest man of all time. He had 500,000 people on his personal payroll. He built these huge palaces. He actually built a house on the coast for Caesar, and Caesar obviously gave him more land for that. He built underground sewer systems. He built aqueducts. He built these specially inscribed stones that were cut and transported just for the purpose of his palaces. In fact, some of these stones were so big that the, and this will show you how technologically advanced Herod was, is they were so big that the only technology that we use today actively 
that would move these stones are the cranes that moved cruise ships. Right, so, so this, is, this is big stuff, and he's really technologically advanced for this time. But Herod also had some personal problems. He had 11 wives and 43 children. One time, um, when he left for a trip, he had suspected his wife of being unfaithful to him. So he told one of his assistants, if I don't come back from this trip, go ahead and kill her. And his wife uh, found out about his plan, and so when he arrived safely back home, she was surprisingly distant. Um, I, I don't know the purpose for that, but so he threatened to kill her, which is really the best way to regain trust in a marriage relationship. Um, what, I know a lot of marriage counselors, so. Uh, but uh, so he put her on trial, and her sister was the primary witness against her in the trial. And then he eventually had his wife killed. He also killed his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law. Um, there's actually a story that Caesar was so afraid that no one would be sad at the day of his death that he went out and killed when he was getting, thought that he would be sick. He went out and had an order to kill lots and lots of people, the high-ranking people, so at least some people would be sad on the day of his funeral. Really crazy. He had has suspected three of his sons of treason, he drowned one of them and killed the other two, even after they begged for their life and tried to prove their loyalty. There was a legend that King David had spent some time hiding out in a cave at a place called Masada. So Herod said, if your greatest king in all of your history will hide in Masada, I'm going to live in luxury in Masada. So he built a palace there. He also wanted a palace and a fortress halfway between Jerusalem and his home country of Edom. So he found this place right exactly between Jerusalem and Edom. And the problem was, Herod really wanted to live on a mountain. And in this spot, there was no mountain. So you know what he did? He built a mountain. Jesus, it's really significant because this mountain happened to uh, enshadow the village of Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. So literally, Jesus was born under the shadow of the Roman Empire. Also, Jesus at the Mount of Olives in his teaching, he says to his followers when speaking of faith, he says, you can say to this mountain, and it will be moved, and it will be thrown into the sea. Well, from the Mount of Olives, where they believe that he said that, you can see Herod's artificial mountain in the distance. So he's speaking to the power at that time. Now, it says that Herod and all of Jerusalem were disturbed by this idea of a new king. And I can understand, as I was reading this, how Herod would be disturbed. But I wondered, why would the whole city be disturbed? Um, well, in this city at this particular time, there's no farmland. Uh, Herod lived in the city, and he was surrounded by all the people who were part of his regime. So if you lived in the city at this time, you worked for Herod. You were part of Herod's crew. So there's really a tight group of elites who live in this city. But most of the people in this place at this time, who lived at the time of Jesus, were, were involved in agriculture, were involved in fishing. They didn't live in the city. So what would happen is, is you can see how those who lived in the city would be threatened because um, if Herod's regime is torn down, then your whole livelihood is torn down. But on the flip side, what Herod would do is he would have tax collectors go out to all these small villages and take 80 to 90% of all the agriculture and all the fish. So the situation that's going on here is there's extremely rich, this extremely rich, violent Edomite, of which you, as a Jewish person, 
are supplying his riches, and he rules the nations. So if you live in this city, um, there's a lot going on right now. And in light of all this, um, we might ask ourselves, what's the significance of this question that the Magi ask? Where is the one to be born king of the Jews? I think what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus is the true king, and there's a new kingdom that's dawning. And Herod is an imposter. He wants us to see the need for a new king, that in the middle of oppression, in the middle of all of these circumstances that are going on, there are wise men who show up and ask for the king of the Jews. Let's continue a reading with verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. One time I was doing a sermon on the Magi, and afterwards I had a buddy of mine come up to me, and he's kind of a cowboy guy, and, and he, said, uh, he said, hey, Preston, you're a preacher, you should know this. And that always kind of scares me a little bit when people start a conversation like that. But, but he said, what did the wise men do for a living? And I said, well, you know, it's, it, it's kind of complicated. We're not sure. It's speculation. Um, they were scholars, and they were also, there was a religious component. They're studying the stars and kind of, you know, tried to explain a little bit that I could. And, and he said, nope. I said, oh, okay. Well, do you know? What did, what did they do for a living? And he said, well, they were firemen. And I said, firemen? Really? They were firemen. And how do you know that? And he said, well, the scriptures clearly state that they came from afar. <laughs> that happened, so. And uh, you guys actually laughed. The other services just groaned. <laughs> uh, but history tells us that Jesus is probably like two years old about this time. And uh, uh, one of the interesting things that, that happens here is, is how God's plan is revealed through creation here. And God uses the stars in creation. Um, and in reading our previous passage, we're reminded this, that the whole earth is his. And in the ancient Near East, they had a really different concept of, of the world than we do, and that the world was seen as completely interconnected. So human experiences were seen to just be a piece of something larger that was happening in the world. So if something significant was happening in the cosmos, it signaled that something significant was happening in the earth. And this is a group of people, magi, they, they weren't kings necessarily, even though the song says that, not necessarily three of them, who are probably astrologers. They're probably people who worship the stars or at least look to the stars for what is to come. Many people think that they may have been Zoroastrian scholars, which is really interesting if you look at that religion at this time. Um, Zoroastrianism is a belief in one God, like the Jewish God, which was really rare at this time, but 
this God was really transcendent, really sovereign, really big, but never close, always distant. So I think there's something really powerful in Matthew's gospel here about these people that may be Zoroastrian scholars who believe in a really big God, but not a close God, and they find God in a manger. Something beautiful about that. But whatever the case, we might say they're looking for something in creation. They're yearning for something. We don't know exactly, obviously, what this was. Scholars have debated. In 7 BC, there was the planet Jupiter, which was seen as the kingly planet, and the planet Saturn, which was seen as kind of representing the Jewish people, crossed a bunch of different times. And so some people think that might have been what was going on. But whatever it was, God was at work in creation. And I think it's important for us to see that, because often in our world, the way we think, especially in our, our Western world, is we can tend to separate kind of our natural world and our physical world from everything else to a point where it's not seen as significant. We can separate our lives from God's creation. We can see this God's creation as something other to our experience. And when that happens, rather than seeing it as God's handiwork, creation can become just something to be exploited or abused or something disconnected. The Magi were an interesting group of people in this story. They weren't poor like everyone else in the story was. But they were definitely outsiders to the story. When the angel appeared to the shepherds, the original hearers probably would have gone, well, why would you come to such a lowly people? But it still would have made sense because the shepherds were Jewish people. Jesus was born. He was a Jewish boy. So that would make sense. So far, this is a Jewish story. But when the magi enter the story, it's like a random wrench gets thrown in. Not only were they not Jewish, but they were pagans. They were rich, they were intelligent, and they were non-Jewish, which is three strikes against them. Perhaps this challenges us when it comes to thinking of people of other cultures and of, uh, even other faiths. Many of us have friends or co-workers or family members of other faiths. And perhaps our prayer for them, and we should pray for them, and our prayer for them should not be that they stop seeking or that they even do an about-face, but that God, in the person of Jesus, would meet them in their seeking, that a light would shine in their night sky, and they would be captivated by the Jesus story. That's our prayer. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection all point to bringing in the outsiders. When Jesus heals the leper, he not only puts his body back together, which obviously that's a really big deal, but he also restores him to community. He is part of the community again. Jesus allows a Syrophoenician woman to debate him and even win the debate. Fascinating. He spends time with tax collectors and sinners, the rejected and the despised. And on the cross, Jesus looks over at a convicted criminal, most likely a pagan revolutionary, recognizes his trust and says, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm going to look just at one more story from the New Testament. Early on in the book of Acts, we see this guy named Paul who emerges as a really significant figure. Paul is actually one of two names that he has. He has a Jewish name, Saul. Um, he is from the sect of the Pharisees, which if you remember throughout the gospel stories, the Pharisees tend to be some of the greatest opponents of Jesus. And this is a group that has a really high value for strict observance to the law. And they believed that the only way that they would ever be able to be released from oppression of the Roman Empire is if they could obey the law to the fullest, to its completest, most complete letter. Yeah. 
they had clear boundaries of distinction between insiders and outsiders. And some of these boundaries of distinction were pretty straightforward. The Jews were in, Gentiles and Samaritans were out. Those who lived rightly were in, sinners were out. But over time, these boundaries of distinction began to grow more and more complex. Those who washed their hands with the right kind of pitcher were in. Those who didn't were out. Those who were whole in their bodies were in. Those who weren't were out. And the Pharisees took their call as God's chosen people as something to be kept to themselves. And they were so convinced that they needed to be separated from everybody else in order for God's kingdom to come. Saul was one of the more passionate of this group. In fact, when an early group of Jesus followers began to rise up, Saul became so passionate about the insiders and outsiders distinction that he persecuted and even killed Christians. But something amazing happens to Saul. If you know the story, he has a radical encounter with the risen Jesus Christ, and he's forever changed. Not only does he become a follower of Jesus, but he takes upon the call of God to take this gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles those who are the outsiders of the outsiders. He takes that as his mission. But Saul is so passionate about his mission, so convinced of his calling, that he takes on a new name, Paul, so that he can better reach the Gentiles. But not all early Jewish Christians were this excited about bringing outsiders inside. There's actually a really big debate and controversy that's brewing as Gentiles are being converted. And Acts chapter 15, we see that there's a group of these Christian Pharisees who believed that there were certain cultural Jewish things that new converts, Gentiles coming into the faith, had to embrace before they could be part of the family, part of the community. And these included circumcision, the Sabbath food laws, um, observing the Sabbath, all of these things. Following the way of Jesus was not seen as enough. And you can kind of sympathize with them if you put the, yourself in their shoes. Abraham was given this call to circumcise like a millennium before this. It had gone on for a long, long time. People died over this. This had always been the sign of who was part of the in-group. Why would we do away with this? Now you're just going to let anybody who wants to follow Jesus be part of the family? Really? But Peter finally steps up in the midst of this debate. Peter finally steps up. He's had a vision of the Holy Spirit at work in the Gentiles. And he recognizes it, and he really calls them out. As one of the pillars of the church, he recognizes, no, God is at work in the outsiders. Richard Foster says this. At the great Jerusalem council described in Acts 15, it was decided once and for all that faith in Christ demands no cultural presuppositions. We can receive one another in our own cultural vessel. Gentiles do not need to become cultural Jews to be disciples of Jesus nor do Jews need to become Gentiles. Eskimos can remain Eskimo, and Samoans can remain Samoan. Norwegians can worship and serve Christ in Norwegian ways, and Zambian in Zambian ways. Each culture, of course, has elements in it that are discontinuous with the gospel message and life, and these we repudiate. Listen to this, but seldom are these the things that we imagine first. So they come up with... Uh, four rules that need to be observed by these Gentiles. And it's, I think it's kind of strange sometimes that we think of, well, why would they put in rules at this point after if it's about bringing outsiders inside? But I think we'll see that these guidelines are given really to keep the unity of these folks, to 
of all different traditions. The first one is idolatry. Really, idolatry is something that leads us away from Christ. Uh, idolatry breaks apart communities. And actually, the definition of being um, a Jew or a follower of Jesus is to believe in one God and have no other idols. So this might mean an overt idolatry, the worshiping of other gods, or it might be a more subtle idolatry. In our context, maybe it's the form of materialism or individualism that becomes our idol. The second one is sexual immorality. We shouldn't read this as some arbitrary rule created by the early church. Also, it's not just a rule that's put in place to restrain us or to keep us from having too much freedom. Instead, the early church recognized that sexual immorality tears communities apart. When spouses cheat on one another, when people are promiscuous, relationships are broken. And in the early Christian letters in scripture, we see that a lot of these guidelines are given because the early church fathers are so sensitive to community being torn apart, people being torn away from each other. And the last two rules have to do with food, which seem really strange and random to us because uh, most of us don't strangle our food before we eat it, and most of us don't have a taste for blood. Uh, but I would argue that these last two food laws also have to do with unity. Both are associated with pagan food laws, but ultimately, it's important for the early church that Jews and Gentiles can sit at the same table together, that they can eat together, they can be in relationship with one another. So they're proclaiming these guidelines to say, let's get all this food stuff out of the way so that we can have a meal so we can spend time together. You might know from your own life, food has a way of building community, right? When I eat with you, it says something about our relationship. But you can see how challenging this would be. This means if the good news is really for all people, if the good news is really going out and not just self-seeking, but, but is moving outwards, this means it's also good news for the Edomites. This means it's good news for the Romans, for the Persians, for the Greeks, for the Egyptians. All these people who we've always thought were enemies of God are now invited to participate in the life of God. We might ask ourselves um, what cultural baggage we've attached to the gospel that doesn't need to be there. Can we sit down at a table with other Christ followers who are different than us? This is saying all are welcome. But in fact, this has been God's desire all along. Um, even though it seemed kind of innovative to the early church, uh, it was actually the traditional position. It was what God had in mind all along. So we might ask ourselves, can we embrace new people into the faith who may be different than us? How many rules, whether they're spoken or unspoken, can be present in our churches today? Is our faith in our lives oriented outward? Or is it self-seeking? Are we primarily concerned with our own safety, with our own security, or with the good news that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death through his death and resurrection? The call still goes out today. So just as we close this morning, perhaps you're here today and you feel like an outsider. Maybe you identify with the Magi and you feel like you've come from far, far away. Know that you're invited you are called to participate in the life of God. Perhaps your past has held you back. You feel like God could never love you or use you because of what you've done, because of who you are or because of where you come from. Know today the call goes out to you. You are fully loved and you are fully accepted. 
Some of you may be answering this call for the first time today, and this isn't something you've really done before. In fact, maybe you feel like most of your life you've been running away from this call that's going out. And perhaps some of us come today with deep doubts and questions about our faith. I just pray today that you would allow him to meet you in your seeking. Know that he meets you right there. Even in the midst of your doubt, God can handle doubts. God can handle questions, and he meets you right there. Perhaps on the other side, maybe you find yourself here today, and and you find yourself labeling people as insiders and outsiders. Know that like Paul, God has a great plan for your life. Allow him to change your plans. Surrender your plans to him for his heart for you and his heart for the world. Let's pray together. Um, Lord, we are um, incredibly thankful for your love and your embrace today. Uh, We're thankful for your light that shines in dark places. And I just pray for that, that we would see your light shining in the places in our lives that are dark and broken, in the places in our relationships that seem dark, in the places around the world that are dark, that your light would shine. Lord, that we would um, recognize and take up our call to participate in your redemption through the world. Thank you that we have been blessed, that you've called us as your people. You've given us so much. So, Lord, we choose to respond because you have someone to be for us in the world. We trust you, Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why don't you stand to your feet this morning? I think this is a really important message for us as we go into the new year, and I think I would just um, repeat what Preston was saying and ask, or we would ask ourselves, who, who are the outsiders in our context? And what have we been doing with them? Have we been 